Well, there I was. I don't know. I think it was in Wayne, maybe Rockaway, with some dear friends watching Avengers Infinity War. Okay? I know most of you have seen that. Uh, if you haven't seen it, whatever. Anyway, we're in, I'm not going to give anything away, but here's the deal. You get to the end of this movie, and it's like a seven-hour movie. I don't know. It was a long movie, right? So you get the, and there's a lot of heroes in this movie. Like, it's the, it's the first, you know, the main kind of beginning of the end of whatever. So all the heroes are in there, you know. And, uh, and you get to the end of this movie, and it's not the end. Like, it's not even close to the end. You get to the end of the movie, it's like in the middle of the climactic whatever. And then, not only are we, are we at the end, spoiler alert, they lose. And you're like, What? And I tell you what, they leave, they give you this little, just this little wink at the very end after the credits. You gotta sit through the credits, okay, to get this little wink that's like, this isn't the end, it's not over. Save your money for the next one. Right? Isn't it funny how they're always making another one? So interesting. Anyway, uh, so I get to the end of that movie and I thought, I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, this is the worst movie I've ever seen. Because I want resolution. I want I want the, the good guys to win. I want to feel good. And then I want to go get a burger and be happy. Like, I just want this to be over, right? This is, and it's not over. And so you get to the end. And if, if there wasn't that little wink at the end, I'm walking out of that theater. And I'm telling you what, I'm sad, right? Maybe I'm crying. I'm not, gonna, I'm not afraid to publicly confess that. It was bad. <laughs> maybe I'm angry, right? I'm angry at Thanos. Absolutely, right? Uh, maybe I'm bitter at the director for making this decision and for the higher-ups at Marvel or Disney, whatever, right? So I'm, if, if I don't have that little hint that says, hey, this isn't the end, I'm coming out of that movie, and I'm, and I'm, I'm in a bad place. Because if I'm going to come out of that movie at all, I really need to know this is not the end. Otherwise, I'm never watching another one of those movies again, right? This isn't the end. Maybe this morning you're here, and for whatever reason, it's not a movie, you're in a situation where you're sad or you're bitter about something. You're confused. You're like, Lord, I don't know what you're doing. You're angry with someone for doing something. You're facing financial challenge, physical challenge, whatever it might be. And you're just thinking, man, is this all there is? Is this it? I've come this far for this? And maybe you need to know this morning, you just need to hear this, this really simple truth. This isn't the end. You see, in 2 Kings 25, we come to the end of 2 Kings, and frankly, we've been watching this train wreck slowly unfold throughout 1 and 2 Kings, and we finally come here to the end of the kingdom of Judah. We come to the destruction of Jerusalem. We come to the completion of taking Judah into exile. It's like all the, all the prophetic word that God had given, all the warnings, it all finally actually comes to pass this morning. And we read one of the saddest moments in the Old Testament this morning, arguably the saddest. And yet, as we read it, we need to know this isn't the end. And so there's much for us to learn this morning. Again, maybe you're in a tough spot. Maybe you've suffered loss. You need to know that this isn't the end. We'll actually see this morning not only the tragic end of Judah, but why there's hope even in the midst of what could be argued are Judah's darkest days. And maybe you need to know this morning that there's hope for you in the midst of what you're facing. So let's take a look at this. 2 Kings 25, picking it up in verse 1. We're in the middle of the historical circumstances of the Babylonian uh, destruction of Judah. So that's happened in a couple phases so far. We're, we're coming to the last phase here. So we're picking it up in verse 1 of 2 Kings 25. In the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon 
advanced against Jerusalem with his entire army. They laid siege to the city and built a siege wall against it all around. The city was under siege until King Zedekiah's 11th year. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that the common people had no food. Then the city was broken into, and all the warriors fled at night by way of the city gate between the two walls near the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans surrounded the city. As the king made his way along uh, the route to the Arabah, the Chaldean army pursued him and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. Zedekiah's entire army left him and scattered. If you just pause there at verse 5, I'll show you how this unfolded, and then we'll talk about it, the significance. But... Um, the, the red arrows here, this is uh, Nebuchadnezzar's army. This is 588 B.C. They come to town once again. And uh, we actually have Babylonian record of the conquering of these other cities uh, during this campaign. They eventually get up to Jerusalem. Again, uh, 588, the, the siege starts. 586, the siege is concluded. Zedekiah, uh, the king, flees down here, down towards the desert, trying to get across the Jordan to find some, uh, somewhere to hide. Uh, just like King David, actually, of old. I mean, that's like the same thing, just trying to get out of town and get somewhere to hide. And actually, I can show you a picture, just so you can get a, a visual here, the sense of, um, th this, is, this is Jericho, okay? Jerusalem's up here to the, to the left. And so they came down either this, the Wadi Kilt, or uh, probably Wadi Kilt came down here, and then they were going to probably try to head across the Jordan this way. So somewhere in the plains of Jericho here, the, uh, Cal uh, the Babylonians, or the Chaldeans, that's another word for Babylonians, they caught up with them, and... Um, and captured King Zedekiah and captured his army. In the meantime, the people, because of the siege, have no food in the city. Um, they've torn down the walls. I mean, the whole thing, the whole situation is a disaster. The last king had fallen. So just think about that for a second. The king of God's people, whom God had promised to put them in this land, the king who was a descendant of David, even though he was installed by Babylon, we saw that last week, he still was a king who could have, in theory, led the people in worshiping the Lord. He did not do that. And so we finally come here to the end. Now, watch verse 6 and verse 7, just as we see the, the Chaldeans mop it up here. The Chaldeans seized the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered Zedekiah's sons before his eyes. Finally, the king of Babylon blinded Zedekiah, bound him in bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. This is the end of the last king. For the last thing he sees are his own sons executed, and then they burn his eyes out. You know, here, here's, here's the reality. This kingship was supposed to lead the people in worshiping God, and instead they have led them cumulatively to this point, this disaster. And we've argued it the whole time through First and Second Kings, but Israel needs a better king. They, they, they need a better king who can actually lead the people to victory and to success, who can actually lead the people to love God with all that they are and to love their neighbor as much as they love themselves. That's the king they need. And if we wondered whether or not Zedekiah was it, we get, we get tragic confirmation this morning he is not it. In fact, he is humiliated. There are a few things as humiliating in an ancient Eastern culture as your king being captured, uh, him being, uh, you know, blinded and being taken in chains uh, as a prisoner to the, to the foreign nation. That was it. I mean, that was, that was it. The whole, the, whole, the whole situation 
was an, a massive defeat. And yet it points us to the greater son of David. Because where Zedekiah failed, in fact, where kings fail, right, that's where the greater son of David would succeed. The greater son of David succeeds where kings fail. Now, here's, here's how this relates to Zedekiah. You know, you're looking for a strong leader. You're looking for a leader to, to stand up uh, to the enemy. You're looking for a leader to actually, again, guide people in worship. And yet Zedekiah doesn't do any of that. And he ends up blinded, right? And so, you're, you know, in some senses you're saying, I'll, I'll take anything. I'll take a better leader. And we, we tend to think pragmatically, especially in our political system where we actively get to choose our leaders, you know, frankly, just between you and me and the internet, I mean, I'm not looking for much, okay, in a leader that I vote for. I just, I just kind of need somebody that's a decent human being, right, who shares some of my convictions on what I think is right. I mean, I'm not, I'm not looking for a super saint. I'm not looking for, in fact, I'll just settle for one who can see and makes good decisions. Like, that's about it, right? If I can get that, you got my vote. And yet here, Zedekiah, in tragic failure, ends up blinded, taken captive to Babylon. I wonder if we're not settling for kings who are blind. Meaning we're tying our hopes to political leaders who cannot lead us to victory. They never could. And yet there's the greater son of David. The greater son of David who not only can see, but who is the light of the world. There's the greater son of David who not only isn't blind, but who gives sight to the blind. Did you know that Jesus did this one time right there in Jericho? I don't think it's a mistake. Jesus is traveling up to Jerusalem. He's with the disciples. It's uh, right before the Passion Week, so they're going up. And uh, there's this blind guy, blind Bartimaeus, right? And so there's Bartimaeus. This is Mark chapter 10. And Bartimaeus is calling out. And everybody's like, Bartimaeus, be quiet. Don't bother him. He's, he's crying out, son of David, have mercy on me. Why is he calling out, son of David, have mercy on me? Because of 2 Samuel 7, where God promises to David that one of his sons as king will reign forever. And because of First and Second Kings, because none of those guys, including Zedekiah, were that greater son of David. So they're waiting for the Messiah. They're waiting for the king to come. And here's Jesus rolling through town and blind Bartimaeus, who can't see, but maybe who sees better than anybody else at that moment. He says, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus, you know, he says, let, let him go. Let him talk to me. And then Jesus says, what do you want? And he tells him, I want to see. And you know what Jesus said? The greater son of David, he said, go, your faith has saved you. And he healed him. Right then. Because Jesus is not the blind king. Jesus is the king who gives sight to the blind I wonder if we're not settling for lesser kings. And listen, political leaders have a job to do in any culture, basically to keep the peace and allow us to worship God, to follow God. That's, that's their function, to punish those who would do wrongdoing. That's it. But maybe, we can, maybe we're tempted to get too wrapped up in what a political leader offers or what a government can offer that they really can never do. They make promises that they can't fulfill. And the end of the day, they end up blind kings. <laughs> but man, there is a king who gives sight to the blind. 
He's, not a, he's a king who not only gives sight to the blind, but who also does what the law and the temple couldn't do. In verse 8, we see here in the next part of chapter 25, the end of the temple and the, the final exile of the people. On, on the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of the king, uh, of, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, Captain, where's Ben and uh, Laura? Nebuzaradan. Write that one down for baby names. Yeah, okay. Uh, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guards, a servant of the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem. What does he do in verse 9? He burned the Lord's temple, the king's palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. He burned down all the great houses. The whole Chaldean army, with the captain of the guard, uh, with the captain of the guards, tore down the walls surrounding Jerusalem. If you just pause there at verse 10, here's the reality. Um, this was fulfillment of 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 6 to 9, where God promised that if, the, if his people continue to chase idols, that he will reject the temple. And here the rejection of the temple is complete in its destruction, where the temple of Yahweh burns. Now, the, the fact of the matter is that God had dwelled uniquely with his people in the tabernacle or temple since the Exodus. So there's, there's tragedy going on in this verse uh, that's hard for us to, to comprehend. But, I mean, we need to try to feel it here. That this is the ultimate statement about the separation of God from his people. And it's not just about the temple, though, or the buildings or the walls. In verse 11, it's the people, too. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guards, deported the rest of the people who remained in the city, the deserters who had defected to the king of Babylon and the rest of the population. They take them all. Verse 12, but the captain of the guards left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and farmers. So they left the ultra poor there to just work the land. Verse 13, now the Chaldeans broke into pieces the bronze pillars of the Lord's temple, the water carts, the bronze basin which were in the Lord's temple, and carried the bronze to Babylon. Just, again, what's going on here is we're having the undoing of Solomon's building of the temple. The temple is being destroyed, it's being burned, but in the meantime, they also took all the valuable stuff out of it. These were things that were dedicated to the Lord, and they had already stripped the temple of its gold and silver, but now they're taking the bronze as well. And it's this tragic reversal of Solomon building the temple. I don't know if you remember, remember so long ago, we went over that narrative. But man, Solomon builds the temple and commissions the artists to, to make these special pieces that are designated for holy use. They only are to be used in the worship of God. And here they're being taken by pagans, being melted down and being used to make Babylonian jewelry for the king. Verse 14, they also took the pots, the shovels, wick trimmers, dishes, and all the bronze articles used in the priest's service. Again, those were implements that were made only to be used to, to glorify God. And now they're being taken and, and melted down. The captain of the guards took away the fire pans and the sprinkling basins, right? Whatever was gold or silver, as well as all the bronze. Verse 16, as for the two pillars, the one basin and the water carts that Solomon had made for the Lord's temple, the weight of the bronze of all these articles was beyond measure. We can't even measure how heavy this stuff was. It was so heavy. One pillar was 27 feet tall and had a bronze capital on top of it. The capital, encircled by grating and pomegranates of bronze, stood five feet high. The second pillar was the same with its own grating. The captain of the guards also took away Sariah, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the priest of the second rank, and the three doorkeepers. These are servants, right, in the administration of the king and of the temple. Verse 19, from the city he took a court official who had been appointed over the warriors, five trusted royal aides found in the city, the secretary of the commander of the army who enlisted the people of the land for military duty, 
and 60 men from the common people who were found within the city. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guards, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. The king of Babylon put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah went into exile from its land. They were brought to that land by God, fulfilling his promises. Taken out of slavery in Egypt. In spite of unbelief in the wilderness, God delivered them to the land he had promised them, miraculously giving them victory over the inhabitants of the land during the conquest in Joshua so they could dwell there, assigning them their tribal locations. And all he said to them was, if you will be faithful to worship me and to follow my commands, we're good. But day after day, time after time, the people proved they were incapable of that. They couldn't do it. And the law that God gave exposed the fact that they couldn't do it. And the temple, even though the temple system was designed to allow God to temporarily dwell with his people in spite of their sin, the temple was never designed to solve the problem of sin permanently. And so as the temple is burned and as it's gutted, right, and as it's plundered by the Babylonians, there's this tragic kind of exclamation point that says, this is not only the failure of Israel's kings, this is the failure of Israel's people. But once again, the greater son of David succeeds where the law proves not just they fail, where the law proves that we fail. Because again, the problem here, the problem here is sin in the people. And I'd love to tell you that's just an Old Testament problem, but come on, you know me better than that. This is our problem. And yes, the law of God is not given to the Gentiles, it's not given to us. But the law of God in our hearts that says love God and love people, that part of the law is given to us. We find that out, by the way, in Romans chapter 2, that we have that part of the law functioning in us. And that simple law of love God and love people, we break all the time. And yet, the greater son of David doesn't fail in this regard. He succeeds. He did what the law couldn't do. We talked about that last week. He did what the temple couldn't do ultimately. The law and the temple aren't deficient. Let's just be really clear. The law is good. It's a good gift because it shows us. It's like we often use this analogy. It's the x-ray machine, right? It can't solve your problem, but it can show you perhaps where the problems are. So that's what the law does. The law says, here's, here's where the problem is. And the temple was a temporary solution. The temple was, okay, here's something we can do in the short run, but man, you're still going to need surgery to deal with this in the long haul, right? The gospel is the surgery. <laughs> it's the permanent fix. And so when the temple burns, it's, it's this tragic moment of confirmation of the sin of people, and we should mourn it. In fact, in the book of Lamentations, we get that explanation of mourning over the, the prophetic, spirit-inspired expression of mourning over the burning of the temple and the burning of Jerusalem. It's such a sad moment, but this isn't the end. Yes, it says that they couldn't do it, and it reminds us that we can't do it. But this isn't the end. Why? Because the greater son of David has succeeded where the law proves that we fail. Now, in light of this, the mourning that goes on here, right, in light of this truth, we, should, we need to ask this question. How should we then respond to our sin? Because this was a sad day. And again, if we really were savvy to the Old Testament weight of what's going on here, I mean, it's the saddest day in many senses. But to apply it, we go, okay, wait a minute. Yeah, the burning of the temple shows that the people failed, absolutely. But guess what? We fail. 
So we need to ask, well, how then should I respond to my sin? And I think, first of all, one helpful response in line with 2 Kings 25 is we should mourn our sin. It is right and good for us to mourn our sin. This is something that our culture, we are just like way past this because we barely can acknowledge that sin's a thing, culturally speaking. And even in the church, sometimes it's hard. But it's okay. Can I just encourage you? It's okay for us. It's more than okay. It is appropriate for us, necessary for us, to say, I have sinned before God. I sinned when I said whatever, when I did whatever, when I wanted to do whatever. I sinned when I thought that, right? I sinned when I treated them that way, when I didn't do that, when I should have done that, whatever. It's right for us, and it is necessary for us to say, I have sinned, and man, that is brutal. And just like you could see the smoke rising from the temple when it was burning, man, it's bad. And we've got to call it what it is. It's important for us to, to mourn our sin and to confess it as sin. Again, so often today, it just again, the culture... Just want to redefine, act, redefine the moral morality so that there is no sin or there's barely any sin. We want to excuse our own sin because we're going to lose face and it's shameful to admit sin. It, it hurts to admit it. But there's a reason the temple was burning. And God's people needed to see that so that they knew, right? They knew that their sin wasn't a joke. That it was the real deal. We can mourn our sin when we confess it. And in 1 John 1, 9, we find out that if we confess it, it's not that we're shamed. It's not that we lose. We lose points or something like that. If we confess our sin, 1 John 1, 9, he is what? Faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin. The greater son of David does better. He does better than the law could do because of our sin, than the temple system could do. Jesus fulfills the law on our behalf. He died for our failure to love God and love people, right? He is the better temple. He is the great high priest, as we were, we were reminded earlier. He is the perfect sacrifice. And therefore, we can confess our sin. We can mourn it and, and say, yes, it's wrong, but we can confess it with full confidence of forgiveness. Because Jesus, the greater son of David, succeeds where the law proves that we fail. Even as we mourn our sin, we run to Jesus. You take that sin, your sin, don't pretend it's not there. Don't sweep it under the rug. Don't justify it or excuse it. And don't tell me you're not sinning because the Bible's really clear on it. We all struggle with it. What should you do with it? You call it what it is and you get to the cross as fast as you can. You confess it. Because he is faithful and he is righteous. And he died in your place and in my place so that we could be forgiven. Secondly, how should we respond to sin? First, mourn your sin. Mourn and confess it. But secondly then, don't despair. Don't despair. So sometimes in traditions where we're very clear on the fact that we need to call sin, sin, sometimes we are mourning over our sin and that's all we ever do. Like, we forget about the cross. We forget about the rest of the story. Did I tell you this isn't the end of the story? I said that, right? This isn't the end. So we can't just sit there and woe is me, woe is us, despair, right? And just, you know, whip yourself and crawl to church, you know, and do whatever. Like, it's like, no, no, that's not where we are. That's not the message here. In fact, in response to our sin, we have to insist, it's not just appropriate, but it's necessary that we don't despair. Because when we despair, we have forgotten that Zedekiah wasn't the last son of David. 
we've forgotten that there, there's a greater son of David. Don't despair. It's like Psalm 30. Weeping may stay for the night, but joy comes when? In the morning. Psalm 30, verse 5. Yeah, sometimes we have to weep over our sin, but we just weep a little while. Why? Because Jesus died and rose from the dead. And so, yeah, we call our sin what it is, but we don't despair. We don't give in to, to that darkness. We don't hide in a cave of often self-focus where it's just all about me and my failure. Get out of that cave. Get to the cross. Remember, even in Lamentations, in you know, this, again, prophetically, uh, divinely inspired you know, book where Jeremiah's mourning, likely Jeremiah's mourning, the burning of the temple and the destruction of the city, Right in the heart of, of Lamentations, what do you read in, in chapter 3, verse 31 and 32? For the Lord will not reject us forever. Even if he causes suffering, he will show compassion according to the abundance of his faithful love. So yes, our sin is ugly. And yes, it should be mourned. But get to the cross, because it is at the cross where we see the abundance of the faithful love of God. And even as the temple's burning and the, the greatest disaster that they could imagine was happening, again, the Spirit-inspired prophet says, yes, but, but God is faithful. And he's sovereign over this, this dark time. And therefore, we have hope. This isn't the end. So how should you respond to your sin? Mourn your sin. Number two, don't despair. Number three, don't get self-righteous. Watch verse 22. This is, gets a little sideways, okay? So King Nebuchadnezzar, we're in verse 22, chapter 25 here. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon appointed Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, over the rest of the people he left in the land of Judah. When all the commanders of the armies, they and their men, heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah, they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah. The commanders included Ishmael, son of Netaniah, uh, Johanan, the son of Kareah, Sariah, the son of Tanhumath, uh, the Netophathite, Netophathite, there you go, and uh, Yaazaniah, the son of the Maccathite. They and their men. Okay, so all these guys with the leader Gedaliah, they go, uh, they go to meet Gedaliah, the, the leader uh, appointed by the king of Babylon. Verse 24, Gedaliah swore an oath to them and their men, assuring them, don't be afraid of the servants of the Chaldeans. Live in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it will go well with you. Pause right there. Gedaliah gives them this message. The message is submit, okay? He, he is giving this message that is in, in concert with, in agreement with, the prophet Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah, if you go back and read Jeremiah, in chapter 29, he tells the exiles, including those that remain, he tells them, basically, God says, submit to Babylon, pray for their well-being, God's got a plan, you're good. So basically, God says, trust me and live with the Babylonians. That was the message through the prophet Jeremiah. And so Gedaliah gives that order. So then all the guys, all these guys whose names I can't pronounce, right? They all come and they meet with Gedaliah at Mizpah. At Mizpah, Gedaliah stands up and he says, okay, I know everybody's upset. It's a really bad day uh, for our people, but we're just going to work with the Babylonians. And if we do that, it will go well. And no doubt he's saying that because of Jeremiah's ministry. Now listen, some of the descendants of, uh, of these other guys, they moved to New Jersey. Because they were like, uh-uh. Uh-uh. No, verse 25. 
In the seventh month, however, Ishmael, son of Netaniah, son of Elishama of the royal family, came with ten men and struck down Gedaliah, and he died. Also, they killed the Judeans and the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah. This guy, Ishmael, is of the royal family. So you don't have to put, you know, you don't have to read too hard in between the lines to figure out what he wants. He's in the royal family. Let's kill Gedaliah. I'm going to take the throne, right? And, and you know what? Let's just not kill Gedaliah. Kill all the traitors who were with him at Mizpah. All those people that said we should submit to Babylon. Kill them all. So they kill all the Judeans and any of the Babylonians that were still there. They killed all of them. What's the result of that? Well, verse 26 then all the people from the youngest to the oldest and the commanders of the army left and went to Egypt for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. This uh, rebellion, this revolution where Gedaliah uh, has been appointed king and then Ishmael's like, take it, let's take him out. Never, you know, we're not going to submit. And in some senses you might hey, say, hey, that was the patriotic move. And they, maybe they even couched it in religious terms. We're not going to submit to God's enemy. Let's rise up and take him. Yeah, you know, let's go. The problem was the prophet had spoken. God had said, you're suffering not because of the Babylonians' wickedness, but because of your wickedness. And I have a plan, and I am good, so for the moment, you just need to settle, and you just need to trust me. That's what God said through the prophet Jeremiah that Gedaliah repeated here. And Ishmael and his boys said, no way. And so they executed Gedaliah, and they killed all these other Judeans. And what's the net result? Well, it's not peace and prosperity for the land. The rest of the people in the land have to flee to Egypt. So now, not only has most of the people been taken in exile to Babylon, anybody who was left now has fled where? Back to Egypt. And if you know your Bible history, we're going backwards because God had rescued them out of Egypt, and now they're going back to Egypt. What is going on? Ishmael and his guys, they thought, we can fix this. We can do it. And they said, I'll, I'll take care of it. How should you respond to your sin? Not like that. We don't see this, the city burning in our, in our lives. We don't see our own sin and mourn it and then say, you know what? I'm going to rise up and I'm going to fix this. Because those efforts are doomed to failure. Because we can't get it done. Ishmael couldn't get it done. He wasn't capable. And you might be tempted to think, yeah, but if I just, and if we could just, and if we had enough money and if we had enough leverage, and if we had the right political leaders in place, we could get this law changed and that law changed, then we could really see the... And I, we can do it. But the greater son of David succeeds where the law proves that we can't do it. Self-righteousness is no way to respond to your sin. I think I can fix it. What does self-righteousness result in? It results in self-deceived pride where you think you actually can do it, which you can't. And you've got an overinflated sense of your own righteousness if you think you can fix this problem. It also could result in, though, in self-destructive despair. If you think, I'm supposed to fix it, and then you try, and then you fail as you inevitably will, then you might end up retreating back into that, that mode of despair. And you just, you're your own worst enemy there. You just keep shooting yourself in the foot every time. Either way, what God's people needed to do here was to submit to him which for the moment meant submitting to Babylon, which the patriots weren't too excited about that. They didn't think they should do it. They thought we should fix this. And maybe you're here this morning, and that's how you've approached religion in your life. Maybe your whole game has been, yeah, I know I've blown it, so I'm going to fix it. And fixing it means I'm going to finally stop doing things I know I shouldn't be doing, 
I'm going to finally start doing good stuff like going to church and giving money to needy causes and I'm going to do the Star of Bethlehem. I'm going to do those kinds of things and I'm going to try to stop cussing. I'm going to try to stop doing this, doing that, right? All those things that we think I can do it. I'll clean my act up and then God will be happy with me. If that was the case, we wouldn't need the greater son of David. We could do it ourselves. But the temple burning screams, we can't. I don't know if you remember, I know you all do, uh, 9-11, no matter where you were in the country, it's like you could see the smoke from those towers going up. Like It didn't matter. It didn't matter where you were from. I was in California when it happened. It didn't matter where you were. It, it was like those images, it was like it was happening right there in Santa Clarita. It was like I was watching it happen right there. This monument to a tragic moment and failure. And in many ways, that's the burning of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. It's this monument that says, the law proves you can't do it. The burning of the temple proves that your efforts to fix this problem are only going to end up with a blinded king and a tragic loss. You need someone to help you. You need someone to rescue you. And that's exactly where the greater son of David comes in. He comes in and he says, I will die in your place to guarantee that you can find grace whenever you need it. I, I will be everything that you couldn't be. And I will pay the price for all of your failures. I will do all of that. You need a temple. You just need a better one. You need the law fulfilled. You just can't do it. So Jesus says, I will do it for you. And so, again, maybe if you're here and that's always been your approach to God where you're going to fix your problems, I would just invite you to believe the gospel. The gospel that says, I'm a failure, I'm a sinner, and I mourn my sin, and I confess it as sin, but I'm not staying there. I turn from my sin, and I put my faith in Jesus, the greater son of David, because he died to pay for my sins. And he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. If you, when you believe that message, you now have finally what you could never do for yourself, peace with God and genuine hope. You get to this point, and it's like, okay, the temple's burned. Everybody's been taken and exiled. The you know, temple's been plundered. The city, the walls are torn down. The whole system's gone down. You know, this quasi-rebellion flamed out. All, all this stuff. It's all bad news, right? And then you get to verse 27, which is the most bizarre, like, epilogue. When, when you look at this passage, it's, so, it's like out of nowhere. So watch verse 27. We haven't talked about this guy, but watch verse 27. On the 27th day of the 12th month of the 37th year of the exile of Judah's king Jehoiakim, in the year evil Merodach became king of Babylon, he pardoned king Jehoiakim of Judah and released him from prison. Pause right there. Jehoiakim who? <laughs> Jehoiakim, who was Zedekiah's brother, who was the son of Josiah, who had previously been a king. He was a bad king, really, really bad king. He had been taken into exile. In Babylon, and he was just languishing away there in prison. In the meantime, Babylon appoints Zedekiah. The whole thing, you know, fails. Zedekiah is the one whose sons are killed, and his eyes are burnt out, and all that. And then now, all this time has gone by, and now we're all of a sudden we're in Babylon in some prison cell somewhere, and this new guy becomes king. His name is Evil Merodach. Don't read too much into that. That's just the spelling of the name, the Babylonian name. It doesn't mean what you think it means. Okay, I don't know if he was evil. If he was a Babylonian king. He probably was. 
but whatever. So just nonetheless, this new guy, evil Merodach, becomes king in Babylon, and he pardons Jehoiakim. We don't know why. Strategic move to like influence the polling that he was getting from the empire. I don't know. He just had really great Chipotle lunch that day and was in a good mood. Like we don't know why. Well, well, maybe we do know why. So evil Merodach, he he pardons Jehoiakim. Watch what that means, verse 28. He spoke kindly to him and set his throne over the thrones of the kings who were with him in Babylon. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on. This doesn't happen, people. And it's not recorded in the official records like this because they would never say it. But what happens is Jehoiakim's in prison. The, the new king changes, the, the, changes the, the tactic, and he says, you know what, I'm going to pardon this guy. And not only that, I'm going to pardon him, and I'm going to elevate him over the other authorities in Babylon. And so he gives him, literally the language, though, in verse 23, gives him the throne over the thrones of the king, the throne above the thrones. You talk about a, a reversal of your fortunes there. He was languishing in this prison in Babylon. Now he's been given the throne above all the other thrones in Babylon. Uh, and then in verse 29, so Jehoiakim changed his prison clothes and he dined regularly in the presence of the king of Babylon for the rest of his life. He came out of there in the classic orange jumpsuit that was, the, we know, Babylonian. I don't know what it was. You know, whatever. He's got the prison clothes on. And like the attendant of the king's like, you can't go into the king dressed like that. Boom, shopping spree, right? And they didn't go to Marshall's. They went to Rodeo Drive. Can I get an amen, right? They did, this is the good stuff here. They went, they, went down in, they went into the city, okay? They did some real shopping, and they got him some clothes that were appropriate for sitting with the king and dining with the king. What kind of clothes are those? The finest clothes. So he goes from wearing prison clothes to wearing the finest clothes. Does that remind you of anybody else who was in prison once? Remember Joseph? Remember Joseph, and he's in prison in Egypt, and it's like his brothers have sold him into slavery, and in his, in his world, the city was burning. I mean, it, it, was, it had all gone down. He was as good as dead. A slave falsely accused, never going to get... I mean, it was bad for him. The language is uh, that Pharaoh lifted his head. In Genesis 40, that's how it says it. Lifted his head. Guess what the language is here about the king when he pardons him? In verse 27, he lifted his head. Same exact phrase. He lifted his head. Joseph changed clothes from the prisoner to now one in the royal presence. Jehoiakim changes his clothes from his prison clothes into the finest clothes so he can dine with the king every day. Not only that, he gets an allowance. Verse 30, as for his allowance, a regular allowance was given to him by the king, a portion for each day for the rest of his life. Jehoiakim had everything taken from him. And it, frankly, he deserved it. He was a wicked king. And yet now the king of Babylon is giving back to him in regular installments for the rest of his life. What had Jehoiakim done to deserve his change of circumstances? Anybody? Nothing. Nothing. Why is this the last, why is this the last part of the story in 2 Kings 25? Because God wants his people to know when they read about the burning of the temple, when they read about the destruction of the city, when they read about Judah going into exile, and they mourn their sin as they rightly should, he wants them to know what? This isn't the end of the story. 
This is not where it stops. There's more, ha- there's more coming. And this little epilogue is God's wink. This is, there's another movie. So you just got to keep, you got to stick with it here, okay? There's more to the story. There's more that's going to happen. And what is going to happen? Restoration, right? And blessing. Jehoiakim, who did not deserve it, was restored. His head was lifted. He was taken out of prison. His clothes were changed. Just like Joseph's head was lifted and he was taken out of prison and his clothes were changed. And now he's dwelling with the king and dining with the king. And now he's receiving financial remuneration from the king. And all of this, why? Because God is doing something bigger through Joseph, way bigger than Joseph in rescuing his people. And he's doing something bigger through Jehoiakim, way bigger than Jehoiakim in rescuing his people. And he wants us to know that this isn't the end, that there is genuine hope for restoration where it's found in the character of God. And it's found as we see God's character on display in Jesus. You see, because all else fails and all else does fail, just in case we wonder, God promises restoration how? Through the greater son of David. So maybe you're struggling, right? You're facing challenging circumstances. If you're not today, maybe you will be. And you're thinking, my temple is burning right now, pretty much. Like, it's bad. You need to know that the king can't rescue you, and you can't rescue yourself, and there's no hope in religion, but there is hope in Jesus Christ. Because he lifts heads, and he buys us new clothes. He restores us. Now, this is... This, is, this actually happens in two phases, okay? But you just need to know that this restoration, this work is happening because Jesus actually occupies the throne above all thrones. That wording is not generic. Okay? Jesus is the one who occupies the throne above all thrones in fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7 and in spite of 1 Kings and 2 Kings. Like he's finally that king that, that has that reign forever who descended from David. And so because all else fails, we need to know that God promises restoration through the greater son of David. And if you just think back over all of 1 and 2 Kings, right, we're tempted again to trust perhaps in a, in a, a political leader. But even if we trust in a wise king like Solomon, the wisest there ever was, we'll be let down. As Solomon let down Israel. And if we, if we trust in the law... Even like a good king like Josiah with the best of intentions and Josiah with all the reforms that he did and all the work that he did, what happened? Well, it all basically collapsed in one generation because it can't solve ultimately the problem of our sin. And if we trust in the religious system like the temple, we think we can fix it. Well, again, we could see the temple going up in flames. But Jesus is greater than Solomon. He is the wisdom from heaven. Jesus is the one who kept the law for us and fulfilled it. Jesus is the one who replaces the temple. And because of that, we have real hope for what? For restoration. For things to be the way they should be. 
Now, again, we, we get this in two payments, okay? When, when you become a believer, when you put your faith in Jesus, you are immediately restored in your relationship with God. Can I get an amen? Your head is lifted. You're out of the prison of sin, right? See, and can it be verse 3, right? You're out, of that, you're out of that prison of sin. You've been redeemed. You've been rescued. So you're out, okay? This is good. And you already start to experience that spiritual restoration. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that we've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. We have that right now if you're a believer in Jesus. You have those benefits right now. You got the new clothes, spiritually speaking. No offense to, you know, it is what it is. So, but like we have that blessing right now. So that, that's the initial down payment. And in the midst of suffering, trials, difficulty, in the midst of even our own sin when we fail, yes, we mourn it, we confess it, we don't despair, we don't turn to self-righteousness. What should we do? Fourthly, what do we do there? Well, we respond with hope because we know that we're in good standing with God and we know that we are restored in our relationship to God. And then as we choose to walk by faith, we start to see that restoration bear fruit in other relationships. Now my family's a little different. Now I I relate to my parents differently. I relate at school differently to the situation. I relate differently to my kids. I relate differently to my spouse. All of a sudden, I've got a different way of thinking. And again, apart from Christ, you may be in a tough situation in your family or a tough situation at school, tough, tough situation at work. And apart from Christ, there's really no reason for you to have hope of genuine lasting change there. Because frankly, this is where it's all going. I mean, outside of Christ, the city's going to burn. But, but man, because all else fails, what does God do? He promises restoration through the greater son of David. And because Jesus would do what these kings couldn't do, we have real hope for real change. Actual restoration where we start to see it play out in our relationships. And we're called into this new family that is the body of Christ. And now we start to experience love and forgiveness and grace as we live life together, as we move forward again, seeking to help one another, follow Jesus. Now we're starting to see restoration. That's all the down payment number one, right? That's the initial uh, receipt of these promises. But ultimately that points us to the ultimate fulfillment of this restoration. If you read about Jehoiakim and his restoration, ultimately you're going, wow, We haven't all gotten there yet in in practical terms because we're waiting for the final deposit, which is the return of Christ and the bringing of the new Jerusalem down to the new earth where it is all going to be good all the time. And that day is coming. Can I just encourage you with that truth? This isn't the end. So, even when it's hard and we have to mourn our sin and things aren't pleasant, but we know we're right with God and we know we're looking forward to those days in the new Jerusalem. Guess what? Which doesn't have a temple. Why? Because the lamb is there. And so there's no risk of the temple burning or any failure because there's no need for that because Jesus has already died and risen from the dead. And guess what? There are no more enemies. Physical enemies, they've been wiped out. Enemies within sin, it's been removed. There's no mourning. There's no suffering. There's none of that. That's where we're headed. You talk about lifting the head, right, and new clothes. I mean, that's what we're looking forward to. All of that is facilitated not just just because God makes promises, but because he fulfills promises. And when we fast forward, biblically speaking, to the ministry of Jesus, 
we see that in light of the failure, even in 2 Kings 25, we see that in light of that failure, what is he doing? He is rescuing his people. He is making it possible for them to experience the ultimate return to the land, which isn't just about Israel getting back to the land of Canaan. It's about God rescuing sinners and causing them to be dwelling with him forever in the new Jerusalem. That's where we're headed. So when you get discouraged, just remember, this isn't the end. And when you fail, call it what it is and know that this isn't the end. And when we face increasingly difficult circumstances, and maybe days get harder for you rather than easier, physical trial, financial trial, whatever it is, political drama, you need to know this isn't the end. Why? Because Jehoiakim got let out of prison. Because Jesus, the greater son of David, is doing a greater work of restoration in us. And we look forward to that ultimate day together. Where my friend Augustine said this, where we will rest and see, See in love, love and praise. That's restoration. And that's where we're headed. Why? Because of the greater son of David. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you for this chapter, which uh, although it shows us the end of Judah at this time in history, Lord, there's so much more going on here. Uh, we see the, the temple burn. We see the defeat of your people. We see the people taken into exile. We see the, the plundering of the temple, Lord. We see the failed efforts to try and make a rebellion happen. But Lord, in all of this, we see not only the reminder that our sin is a problem, and it does cause destruction and hurt, we also see, Lord, the hope that we have in the greater Son of David. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you give sight to the blind. We praise you that you fulfilled the law for us. We praise you that you are our great high priest. We praise you that, that even though the temple was torn down, you rebuilt it in three days. Lord, we praise you that you replaced the temple. And Lord, we praise you that because of your work, when we confess our sin, we can be fully confident we are forgiven. And Lord, we praise you that because of your work on our behalf, we are restored. That you've lifted our heads and you've given us these new clothes. And Lord, we look forward to the future where that is a physical reality that we will experience forever in the resurrection. Lord, we look forward to the new Jerusalem. But in the meantime today, Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember that this isn't the end. That even in our darkest days, whatever we're facing, whatever we will face, Lord, we can, we can face those challenges with real hope. Because, Lord Jesus, you are the greater son of David. We praise you for the gospel. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.